Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Hello and welcome to Codish. I'm Charlie Gleason. I'm a designer and developer at Heroku. And today I am joined by Ben Harding, uh, who is here from Raygum to talk to us about uh, performance tuning, the critical rendering path. Uh, ben, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Ben. I work at Raygum as a developer there, mainly on uh, the front end, of course. And today I'm excited to talk about the critical render path with Charlie. For people who maybe don't know what it is, um, can you kind of describe the critical rendering path? Sure. So in a nutshell, the critical render path is the steps to convert the code, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript into pixels on a screen. So that's the way to translate all of that uh, lovely code we as developers write into pixels that we actually end up seeing and showing to our users. And so in that case, why is the critical rendering path uh, important? So the reason why it's important is the faster that we show these pixels, the better an experience they receive. Um, so in a sense, it's a form of accessibility. But also beyond that, if you're looking at business metrics, 40% uh, of users leave a page if it takes longer than three seconds to load. Page speed affects SEO these days. Um, you can have a look for like mm. the speed update and for the Google bots. And so users are constantly seeking feedback as quickly as they can. And I don't know if you've ever looked at people using the internet sometimes. If it takes a little while to load or they don't have any feedback or nothing is shown, um, then typically they're just going to hit that refresh button and try and get it again because they think something's broken. Yeah, I have definitely done that myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so have I many times. <laughs> and I think uh, on, on the stats of page load times, I've, I remember seeing a stat and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like an enormous amount of money that was lost over small windows of time uh, where like the longer something took to render, the more profound the impact it had on potentially, say for an e-commerce site, how, how much they were selling or, or um, how much turnaround they had on purchases yeah i remember um seeing a stat just the other week actually that for every it was a couple milliseconds that uh, a company improved upon they would get like 0.5 percent more return um more customers got purchasing so it does affect like the bottom line and there are many like articles that have gone over this and how uh, the performance can really impact um, and it should be treated as a feature yeah, and, I, and actually also mentioning um, accessibility, I think that's a really important point as well. The idea that not all internet is created equal and um, being a, having access to the same information like that um, democratization of the internet, like internet as an open space means that for people who are in environments where they don't necessarily have the best access to internet or unlimited data or any of those things, it does become, I think that's a really valuable thing to be concerned about or to want to optimize for yeah 100 percent. funny enough i'm actually on a terrible mobile plan uh and only get around about a gig's worth of data uh, which oh, wow. isn't too much but coming from new zealand it could be a lot yeah <laughs> uh, mobile plans aren't the greatest but it seems to be like every month i kind of like run out of mobile data and so yeah having like delivering less assets uh delivering less code 
does have an impact on the user and so whether they have to purchase. So if uh, if I was a person who had a website that was in the browser and I wanted to start to measure this to make it better, um, how would I go about measuring the critical rendering path? So there are a number of like metrics which browsers uh, leverage and show us using the performance timing API these days, which we can use to start uh, measuring to gain an understanding of how fast our website currently is. So whenever you're doing these sort of like performance optimizations, the best approach is generally measure first, then optimize. That way you know your baseline and how much quicker you're making it. So a few different stats we can use are the uh, first contentful paint, the load time, uh, and even the time to interact with is uh, great. Yeah, nice one. So if people aren't aware of those four terms, um, so first paint is... Yeah, so the first paint is the time it takes for the browser to render anything at all. So this could be a background color. And then the first contentful paint? That's generally the time it takes for the browser to render something of meaning, some form of content. This could be an image. This can be uh, some text on the screen. It's just anything that the browser deems is contentful. This is kind of one of those uh, iffy stats where it's really hard for a browser to actually understand what it terms content. Um, and so it just takes a piece of text or an image, anything that is kind of in your DOM that it forms as content or render it there. It can be measured about the same as the first paint sometimes. Um, and I think next up we had load time. Yes. So the load time is the time it takes for all of your assets to download as a whole. So this isn't just your uh, assets that are for the critical render, like CSS or JavaScript. It can be like images that you have further down the page that the user won't see until they actually scroll, if they scroll. Mm. Uh, so it's the total time it takes. It's not a great measurement for the critical render path, but it's also useful to mm. know as a whole if you have a lot of marketing scripts, generally they're loaded asynchronously. Uh, and so knowing the total time it takes to load your application, your whole website is another measurement for how much data is being actually consumed or how much requests are being made. Sure. Yeah. And I think um, marketing scripts definitely get a bad rap for adding um, bloat to page load times, especially if, uh, if the JavaScript isn't set up in a way where that can be loaded async or deferred. Um, and then uh, time to interactive. So time to interactive is the measure of how long it takes for uh, four seconds after the slowest task or the last long task. So it's kind of a measurement in which the user can now start interacting with the page uh, without having some form of delays being slow, slowing it, them down. So clicking buttons, they can start like engaging with your website rather than everything still kind of not working because the main thread is just blocked. Um, actually, that could be a good spot to like step back and, and maybe talk a little bit about how the browser tends to interpret uh, the data from a server and how it kind of turns that into the page as well. Because I think this is really interesting in the sense of like, how are you getting uh, the things up in the fastest possible way? But if people aren't aware of how the browser itself does those things, um, I mean, I think that could be really interesting. Yeah, that sounds great. So very beginning stage of the process, uh, the browser needs to actually make a request to your server um, wherever it's hosted. And so it makes this request. The server generally has some process behind it, unless it's a static website. 
and it then returns that HTML with any like response headers or data that it needs around it. Once your browser and the client's machine downloads it, it then goes through what's called um, parsing. And so it goes through the HTML kind of line by line, reading it. And as it finds any link tags, script tags, images, it starts making requests to download those required assets. And these assets are what can block your actual website from loading. But we'll get to that in a bit. Sure. Once the HTML is fully passed, um, it would have constructed what people commonly know as the uh, DOM, the document object model. And then once the DOM is made, it then constructs what's called that CSS object model, the CSS OM, but I, I don't have a clue how you'd quickly say that like five times. <laughs> <laughs> and it can build this uh, rendered tree. Uh, once the CSS object model and the DOM are constructed, and that render tree is the combination of the two. So it figures out these nodes on your website, these HTML tags use these CSS selectors, and so therefore they need these styles. And then once it has this whole render tree created, it can then apply the initial layout, um, figuring out the position and size, where everything should be laid out beside each other. Maybe you have some flex uh, box elements, you have floating in other areas it then figures out where exactly to place them in relation to one another and then it can start painting it on the screen so this whole complex flow is what your browser needs to do every single time it renders anything on the screen and so trying to make Mm. that process as silky smooth as possible and if you were looking to measure these kinds of things usually um say dev tools in chrome would be an option um are there other things around that if you're trying to measure beyond in the browser yeah so there are a couple of tools available to us if you're trying to measure it dev tools in the browser are a great step of course it's easily accessible to anyone who's a developer um, and even those who aren't you can also use what's called lighthouse uh, they have great tools available um, and even there are some real user monitoring tools out there, which you can inject a script onto your site. They then start tracking the web request timings for you. Um, so they can track the first paint generally, contentful paint, load times, all of that information, and they can then um, display it. Yeah, that's great. So at this point, we've got like an understanding of, of this, of uh, both how the browser interacts with these assets and and displays them. I don't think I realized when I first started working as a front-end developer just how complex that process is. Like you say, it's this huge flow. Um, and then uh, we have these things that we can use to, to measure the critical rendering path. Um, so what are some common optimizations if I, if I had a site that I then wanted to kind of make more better? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to make it better. Common optimizations uh, when you're trying to just make your website better. It's funny how people can kind of sometimes forget, but maybe it's a comment out that we do now is just minify your code, uh, strip out all, all of the spaces, reduce variable names. Um, you can throw it through an automated um, build process to do the step for you. Just minify your code so that you actually end up sending less. Browsers don't need to know how many spaces they are. They don't really need comments in them either. The code is the code to them. And so just removing any of that, just human side to it, I suppose, really help it deliver less, less code. 
and that's where you can have source maps and um, things to help you debug it later on if you do run into a production issue. Sure, yeah. And I suppose there's loads of tools that are out there uh, for having that build step. I mean, NPM would have, I'm sure, an, a million. But are there any that you recommend? Depends on your build setup. Like I know Webpack sure. has quite a number of um, automated minification tools if you have that set up in your pipeline. Um, I think Parcel and um, all of them have their own minification steps, which you can just use. Uh, there's Uglify. I've used that number of times in the past. I will put links to that in the show notes. Uh, any other common um, optimizations that come to mind? Yeah. So another one is just bundling your assets together. Limiting the number of requests is where this mainly comes down to. If you don't need to load an asset on a particular page, don't. Sure. <laughs> and just reducing the amount of assets that you can, um, that you ship to the user. You can start looking at combining JavaScript assets into one bundle mm. uh, or into smaller bundles just combining them if they're um, small enough size uh, just limiting how many requests you actually make and another like common optimization that developers uh, should be doing um, which I kind of always have imagined is common sense but I've encountered in a couple jobs where you go to a website you start looking at the performance is to optimize your images done this a couple of times where I come to a, a website and it's just not optimized. Sure. I think it was, uh, there was a tweet going around last week um, that I will try and find for the show notes. At, um, there was a page on Google. It was one of their marketing sites and I can't remember which one it was, but I'll put a link to it. And it loaded like a 21 or a 28 megabyte GIF, which is just like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> like It seems amazing that at no point, I mean, I can see how that could happen, right? But it's, it's amazing that even with all of the tools that we use, that, that can be missed. Like someone could just not realize um, or not necessarily understand the implications of loading 28 megabytes of, of sweet GIF. <laughs> yeah, GIFs are wonderful, but sometimes <laughs> they can just bloat. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> but can kind of understand sometimes and empathize with how that happens. Sure. Uh, like we have a number of uh, docs and blog assets. And when you have external people who aren't developers themselves come and upload these images optimizing them compressing them making sure they're the correct size and defining like the width and height uh, just don't come naturally and i think also there's like the tooling has gotten better around this even if you're not necessarily um a developer using a using a build process like um image optim is a really great free app on um i know it's on mac i'm not sure if it's on other systems but it um makes it really easy to drag and drop in a lossless way and has a really incredible um, impact on asset sizes. Yeah, I've used like TinyPNG in the past. Run it through the there if you don't want to download like an, another tool on your computer sure. per se. <laughs> yeah. And even optimizing SVGs, you can run it through, um, I think it's SVG Go, and then that just goes ahead and compresses your SVGs down so that they're a bit smaller. So were there some other maybe less well-known optimizations that a developer could use to improve um, performance? So a few less well-known optimizations, uh, a lot of them I've bucketed under limiting the blocking requests. So in order to understand what I kind of mean by that, you should like to find the term what a blocking mm. request is. So when a browser actually starts making requests to download assets, uh, not every asset is equal, which is kind of terrible uh, in a sense. But in order to understand why every asset is not equal, it's because each of them is needed in a different part of the mm. process. All of your CSS 
is a blocking request. And a blocking request are assets which the browser directly needs in order to render something on the screen. So it blocks that process until it has that resource, which is why a CSS file is blocking. It can't construct that CSS object model without all of the CSS. And that's purely because uh, in order to construct that CSS object model, uh, it will need every single CSS file you have because it needs to know all of the selectors. And of course, it can't know all of the selectors unless it has the file. So one little trick when it comes to optimizing uh, your website is to start having non-blocking CSS via media queries. So you can start like splitting out your CSS into separate bundles based on whether it's for your mobile view or tablet view, uh, your you know desktop print, if people still do print style sheets sure. these days. And you can create these link tags. You can then say my print.css file, give it that little media attribute and say it's for a screen when it's between these sizes or larger than this or smaller than that. And then that gives a little like helpful hint to the browser saying, you know, you're not going to actually need this file unless you meet this criteria. Therefore, don't sure. download it or only download it when you need. Yeah, I hadn't thought about using that for display sizes as well. That's super interesting. Yeah, it gives that a little like helpful hint. And so instead of like splitting them out into having just one monolithic CSS, you can just have like a couple smaller ones, which you can then like start downloading. Mm. Sort of one of those ones which... Um, don't quite know it's there or useful until actually comes to doing it. Yeah, sure. Until someone points it out, maybe. Yeah, true, true. Or listens to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So another one of these uh, blocking requests, uh, your JavaScript. Most marketing scripts are like asynchronous, meaning that they download in the background without it affecting the render pipeline. But by default, when you inject a script into your page, just using a regular script tag, unless you mark it as asynchronous or deferred, the browser will actually stop passing the HTML until uh, it has downloaded this JavaScript asset and has then passed it as well. And so all JavaScript by default is render blocking. And that's purely because it needs all of the JavaScript because it that JavaScript could manipulate the DOM. It can change what it looks like, what it affects. And so therefore it just has to treat it as render blocking. And that's when you can start adding uh, these asynchronous or deferred tags onto your script. If you mark them as like asynchronous, it tells the browser this is a totally self-contained script. It has no external dependencies. It'll then download that as a lower priority, just whenever it has time. Um, Mm. That can be before it's finished passing the document, that could be after, or marking them as deferred is useful as well. It will then keep that order that it sees them in um, for all deferred assets, that is, uh, and it will then execute it after the, the DOM has been constructed, after that HTML has been passed. Right, interesting. So async is like saying um, load it whenever you want, and defer is like saying wait until uh, the DOM is fully loaded and then uh, run through these in this order. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and so it's really important to remember that that uh, if your script does have external dependencies, use deferred. <laughs> if it doesn't, use like asynchronous. I've fallen into a, a habit. I think the first time I actually played around with this, where I marked a couple of them as asynchronous, expecting that they'll still be run, run executed in that order. Actually, ended up mm-hmm. like shipping out a, a bug 
where sure. <laughs> where it didn't because the file initially there wasn't downloaded. The second one was because it was cached and you get yeah. weird out of order. Yeah, you're going to get some quirky bugs, right? <laughs> Which yeah, always exactly. the hardest to kind of solve, right? <laughs> yeah. When you load up that page and then it starts working for you and you don't understand why is it working for me but not them. <laughs> uh, so another like useful optimization is just preloading or prefetching assets that you have. Um, one that's particularly useful are fonts. Um, if you have big, heavy fonts on your website, you can just add a link tag at the top and say you're going to need this font comic sans or whatever uh you can then add that at the top and it will then like start fetching it instead i can just tell charlie right now it's just a little little bugged at that little maybe (laughs) or then if you don't want to like provide that little hint that by the way you're going to need this font because the reason why i particularly mention fonts is in order for a browser to know that it needs to download a font, it needs to download that CSS file. Giving it that little extra hint just avoids another long request where it downloads a CSS file, it's been waiting for that CSS file, it then reads through it. It's like, hang on, I need this font now. Now I've got to go away and fetch this font. It's just a, like extra layer that it can avoid. Yeah, sure. And start downloading, downloading the font while it's downloading that CSS script. Yeah. And also like preloading or prefetching any critical scripts for your website. So these would be like JavaScript assets that are critical to your page. If you're a single page application, uh, then making sure that they're downloaded right there. Yeah, that's a great point actually, for, especially yeah, for single page apps, like you really, without the bundle, not a lot, usually not a lot's gonna happen. So uh, that makes sense to kind of, to prefetch that um, as soon as possible. Especially if you're working with a more old school um, system that was built a couple of years ago. Sometimes those JavaScript assets could be at the bottom of your page. And so it has to go through your entire document in order to understand right at the end, oh, I need to download this asset. So if you include a preload or a prefetch right at the top, mm. then it can make that request straight away. Um, and then by the time it comes down and sees that, oh, I need this JavaScript file, it's already has access to it or it started that process. Yeah, nice. And then another one when we're on the topic of limiting blocking requests. Um, this isn't quite a blocking request most of the time, but sometimes it can help. Um, combining your images, like you can use SVG symbols now, it kind of comes from that old school like sprite shedding. Yeah. <laughs> Making a sprite sheet. Actually, um, Heroku's product and marketing um, icons use a lazy loaded SVG sprite sheet, basically, or a set of definitions and then um, the use um, attribute in SVG to then grab them out of that. Yeah, and I think we've done the same at Raygun. Um, I remember on doing a bit of work on our public sites where we yeah, combined all of the different icons we had into a single SVG. It cut down like number of requests from like 64 to it was like 15 or, or something just from combining all of those icons in their own individual yeah. requests. Another little like optimization tip for... Uh, for people would be to also start looking at delivering less code. Sure. This is where the concept of code splitting comes in. Um, And so code splitting, in essence, is just limiting the amount of requests made for JavaScript assets based on um, what pages they're required um, is one term. Splitting your vendor scripts out from your actual core files 
or you can also go about the other approach of only downloading the actual assets as they're kind of rendered on the screen, which is how I typically think of code splitting. Of If you're going to render a graph on a page, then only include the information around that graph, the vendor file, when it comes to rendering it, as opposed to having it all the time when you don't need it. Yeah, sure. So always just trying to only serve the stuff that you actually need um, for the user. Yeah, exactly. Well, I can um, put a, a link to the code splitting in uh, the show notes again. And there, there are a lot of tools that can help automate this process for you. Um, it's really a big thing. I know React has started to do uh, and probably other uh, frameworks have started looking into as well. Um, Webpack uh, provides useful mechanisms for leveraging this where it will just split out your files into multiple chunks as they're called and then sure. you can start using um, in react land it's called like lazy and suspense to then if a component is rendered then it will download that asset and it will then include it and it will then start actually um, using it after it's rendered on the screen and so that's how i, I know it Reagan. we render our graphs which is where that um, little helpful tip comes in we only download the graph file, the actual vendor script, which accounts for a good chunk of our bundle when it comes to rendering a graph. And that way, not all users are hit by that performance. Yeah, that's a really good point on certain libraries that you might be using have um, really wildly different file sizes or weights. Um, I remember reading about uh, specifically, I think it was code highlighting, like each each language was massive and so um like only loading the language that you needed at the time um could dramatically reduce it and i think there's a bunch of tools out there for measuring if you are using uh third-party uh libraries and um you know if, if javascript if you're using npm or um i know there's tools out there to check the size of that and um i know that webpack has some really good tools as well actually on um measuring your bundle and seeing what each part is made up of and where that potential bloat is coming from. Yeah, some of the visualization tools can really come in handy when it comes to trying to tune them, especially when you yeah. can start seeing, like, in relation to one another, this is how large my this chunk is taking. So how can I start to look at optimizing this? And that's where our tree shaking can come in handy as well when you start looking at uh, methods to just eliminate the dead code that is not used anymore. Sure. So if you've loaded in um, a library and you've used one aspect of it, um, tree shaking will look for ways to, I don't know for a better term of it, then shake that bit of code out of the tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a ton of stuff there that you can do. And then, um, you know, I guess in like the feedback loop to, to tune your performance, you kind of come back and you recheck these aspects of, of your critical rendering path and recheck um, these these pieces of your code or your asset bundles or any of these things. But what point do you think, uh, maybe that's enough now, maybe we've optimized, because I'm guessing that this is something that you could kind of just keep going and squeezing and going and squeezing, um, you know, kind of forever. Yeah, it is one of those uh, iterations where you can go through a stage where you start looking at optimizing uh, you do a whole lot of optimization and, and then over time it degrades <laughs> and sure. as you build new features, it can just 
that critical render goes up and up and up again. And that's when you start to, oh, now I need to do another round and re-optimize. And I think this is where we need to start thinking about like performance is more of a, it is that constant iteration. That's something we should be like checking more frequently. And there are some cool uh, ideas floating around uh, now around setting uh, performance budgets. Oh, interesting. So this is where you can measure your time to first paint, your load time. You choose a metric. You start measuring that over a period of, say, two weeks. You then set your performance budget to be at the, maybe not the peak of that, but like around about the longest time it took or where that trend is. And then as you make and deliver new features, you come and check back after another two weeks. And if you've made any improvements, you then bring that budget back down and you're not allowed that actual line uh, that you've set to go up higher. Mm. If it does go higher, that's when you need to do a round of iterations to improve it. Um, But if it goes lower, you start like dragging that line back down. You start saying, hang on, like we need to like improve this, have it keep getting better or at least stay the same over time. So like iterative optimizations is better than... um coming at it once every six months and being like, oh, gosh, <laughs> yeah. we have so what much do? to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you got to spend all that extra time, like, just trying to claw back. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really interesting balancing act as well and, like, finding a way to formalize that process, whether you're in a small business or big business or a freelancer, like, all, all time is relative. So I think it's, like, finding a process that you can stick to and that feels maintainable and feels like it becomes part of your process um, is, is probably a valuable way to kind of keep on top of optimizing um, overall. Yeah, I'd say that as well. Like it's something that you should just start to come natural. You start to make the deployments and you're like, oh, how uh, how's the performance looking? Have we, uh, much like how you make a deployment, you should be seeing how many errors are there. Is it working or not? Start having a look at that performance and be like, oh yeah, the performance is looking great or oh no yes <laughs> what did we do <laughs> at raygun we have a real use monitoring tool as well which you can plug into and start to track load time and other metrics oh very cool but always when it comes to doing some of these performance uh, for a first time person jumping in and trying to look at how do i improve the performance the good mentality to have is always measure first and then optimize and then at the very least uh, if you do do that you can then start to look at the percentages you've gained. So to be, I improved the performance by this amount. Everyone loves a number that uh, is going in a better direction, right? And I think it's something that um, I like that idea of, of making it something that you can be uh, excited about or see and be proud of or feel like you've made a difference to for all the issues that having a slow load time is going to have on your clients or on accessibility or on the way that people interact with your work. It feels like a really valuable thing and it feels like there's a ton of tools and tricks that you can use to kind of, I don't know, make it make it better, like I said earlier. <laughs> make it better. <laughs> it's always make it better. Um, was there anything else, you know, that you wanted to uh, leave people to think about or any other resources you think people should check out? Yeah, so the last, like, little things that actually come to mind is always keep your user in mind. Sometimes you can't optimize the flow uh, and that's okay. And so think about like the user's perceived performance in, in that regard. Just things like uh, having spinners or loading states so that they at least get some like feedback around sure. it. I know some tips for like 
you could show some jokes, you could show some tips, you could show hints, um, just give them that sort of like feedback to say something's happening in the background, like don't fret. So you don't think it's broken and refreshed. Yeah, exactly. And just take an iterative approach um, and start just tackling the big bang for buck issues first. Um, if you know you can optimize it in a particular way and it's going to give you that most performance gain for the amount of time spent, then just go for that. Think about the value versus cost it'll take to implement. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like if you know you've got a super image heavy site, maybe start by looking at image optimizations. I mean, after you've after you've measured, if you know you have a ton of marketing scripts and that bloat is increasing and increasing in a way that doesn't feel checked, then maybe try and pair back on that or find ways to load async. Or, you know, I feel like the hint to kind of measure first, measure first and then optimize is really great. And otherwise, just you know, have fun. <laughs> that's just good life advice. <laughs> yeah. Well. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Um, I will put all the things that we talked about um, in the show notes if you want to learn more about any of those things, any of those concepts. Um, is there a way for people to get in touch with you if they wanted to say hi? Yeah. So if anyone wants to say hi, you can always uh, send me an email, benjamin.p.harding at gmail.com. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie. It's been great. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts. 